HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right, folks. It is uh, Monday, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the back of Roberta's Restaurant. Um, And today we have a really great show. We're going to be talking with Eric Holt-Jimenez, who is the executive director of the Food First slash Institute for Food and Development Policy. Um, He has been called... This has been called one of the country's most established food think tanks by the New York Times. And Food First Mission is to end the injustices that cause hunger, poverty, and environmental degradation throughout the world. If that isn't a tall enough order for you, folks. Um, Eric himself uh, grew up working on farms in Northern Carolina, uh, in Northern California, North Carolina, Northern California, what's the difference? No. Uh, and worked for over 30 years in international agricultural development. So he knows of what he speaks. He has published many magazine and academic articles on agroecology, development, food justice, and food sovereignty and is the author-editor of several food-first books, including A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, Understanding the Political Economy of What We Eat. And that is the subject of our discussion today. We're going to be talking uh, lengthily about capitalism. Um, And this book, I have to tell you, was absolutely fascinating, Um, not just for uh, the radical ideas that it brings forth, but also for the very um, well-researched and comprehensive history of how capitalism has uh, affected what we eat today, and that's going back numerous centuries. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, Anyway, stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Eric Holt-Jimenez to talk about his wonderful new book, A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. Let's run a sponsor drop, Dave. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. 
No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at, at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. <laughs> you know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Eric, let's go. So you are totally a radical thinker. You call me pinko you. Well, um, I'll cop to the radical part, because um, <laughs> what we try to do at uh, Food First, and I guess what I've always tried to do, is to go to the root of things. And that's what radical means, is to go to the root. Of course, yeah, you're so right. When, um, you know, when Food First uh, first got started 42 years ago by Francis Moore LePay, uh-huh. who was the author then of Diet for a Small Planet, and sure. it's since gone on to write many other books uh, about food and democracy. Yep. Um, she realized that, you know, at that time, one in seven people were going hungry around the world, but she found that the world was producing one and a half times more than enough food to feed everybody. Mm-hmm. So hunger was not a problem of, um, of lack of food or scarcity. And when she looked into it, she found that, in fact, hunger was a problem of poverty because people couldn't afford to buy the food that was mm-hmm. being produced. And, you know, flash forward 42 years, and that's still the case today. So yeah. we have to sort of go to the root of the problem of hunger and understand what is actually producing hunger, because it's not a natural state. Yeah, and it's not because we don't have enough food. It's because food is not distributed equitably, I would say. Um, yeah, not only, not only is not food not distributed equitably, but in fact the resources to produce food aren't distributed equitably. Mm-hmm. Access and control over markets isn't distributed 
equitably. And I would say the entire value, tremendous, tremendous $6 trillion value of, of the food chain um, is not distributed equitably. And so you see farmers earning um, the least amount of that uh, value mm-hmm. and big processors and big grain traders and big chemical companies like Monsanto and Syngenta earning the most. Right, so, right. Um, well, first, you, you, uh, you pointed in, out that... Investigate that. Yeah, I mean, you pointed out in the book that the capitalist logic of appropriation and substitution has led us to a place where farmers now get less than 10% of the food dollar, whereas in 1910, 100 years, or, you know, slightly less than 100 years ago, they got 40% of that. So, uh, you know, that speaks directly to what you're saying about how uh, the inequitability of, of, of the whole system. So how, how did we get from, from 40% in 1910 to 10% now? What is that just neoliberal? Has that, you know, is it neoliberal politics? Is it, uh, I don't know. I feel like everything started with Reagan and Thatcher, but you can, <laughs> you, you can correct me. <laughs> well, I think that um, it's very important to take a look at what happened when Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher introduced what we now call neoliberalism mm-hmm. into our economies. But it's also important to go back much, much farther than that. Right. Um, because if we think that the problem is just neoliberalism, then I don't think we go far enough mm-hmm. in imagining the solutions. So, I mean, we, the first thing I think we have to realize is that food, our food system and capitalism have co-evolved for several hundred years. Uh, yeah. And in fact, capitalism could not have emerged without the existing food system, the feudal food system, and then you know, mercantilism and whatnot. Capitalism could simply not have emerged without food. And, and, you know, farming and local food systems were essential for the emergence of early capitalism. Um, and none of, we think we forget about that today. Uh, our society is so industrialized. But in fact, ever since its emergence in the 16th, late 16th century, um, capitalism has depended on the food system for a tremendous subsidy to industry, hmm. um, and without it, it, it simply wouldn't have been able to uh, evolve, and it's still true today, and we can see many examples of that, uh, different subsidies which agriculture and rural areas uh, provide industry and capital, just raw capital, you know, right, to, mm-hmm. to finance capital. Um, so there's been, you know, a long, long history of this, and what we have to also understand is that it hasn't been a happy history. I mean, this food system, um, Harriet um, Friedman and Phil McMichael call these food regimes. Mm-hmm. But the present corporate food regime, which is very much associated with the neoliberalism, which you referred to, um, is the third. Uh, you know, starting with a colonial and then a post-war and then, you know, this uh, corporate food regime is the third of uh, three different food regimes in which um, the world's foods have been dominated by a set of rules and institutions um, that go right back to uh, colonialism and the expansion of the European powers and whatnot. And if you go even farther back, we'll go to the great enclosures in England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, mm-hmm. where the peasants were dispossessed of their common land so, because they refused to grow enough sheep for the wool industry. And so the lords very quickly uh, 
and closed the commons, which means that they denied the peasantry access to the commons where they got their firewood, their medicinal herbs, they hunted, they fished. They, a tremendous amount of, of uh, wealth from the commons was needed to maintain uh, peasant agriculture. Mm-hmm. And when the, uh, the lords enclosed these commons and cut down the forests and then run sheep on them, um, suddenly the peasantry is stuck. Right. You know, they, they, don't, they, they don't have access to a tremendous amount of their stability and their wealth. And, you know, their social and environmental resiliency depended on the commons. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, they start getting charged taxes. So they have to go to work in the mills because they don't have money. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and they go to work in the mills, and these were called the satanic mills. And you have this tremendous demographic shift of poor peasants being thrust out of the countryside and into the cities. Mm-hmm. It was called the Reserve Army of Labor. And it was, in fact, the cheap food that the peasantry pr- did produce which allowed those mills to pay such low, low wages to the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the very beginning, we can see how the peasantry and how agriculture begins to subsidize industry, and not because they want to, but because they're forced to. And right. these were terribly um, violent and, um, you know, sort of uh, violent upheavals, demographic and, and social upheavals, which marked the entry of capitalism. And this, the, the entire uh, dispossessed European peasantry, European peasantry, of course, was then used to colonize the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that was not a, a happy event either. I mean, basically, colonization um, was driven by um, indentured servitude and enslavement of 12 million uh, Africans, mostly farmers, mm-hmm. um, who then, you know, produced tremendous amounts of wealth, which were then used to fund the military campaigns of genocide to open up the West, um, we like to say, to Western civilization. In fact, they were opening it up to capitalism. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, we were still agrarian societies back then, even though industry was really getting off the ground. And crops, some were food crops, others not, but crops like, you know, potatoes, maize, tobacco, mm-hmm. rice, were the pillars of early uh, of early capitalism. There's a big parallel between what you've just described and what we do today. Uh, only today we call it land grabbing, and we do it in other continents. Um, why don't you like let's let's make that connection between what was happening then with the you know the open access frontier, which uh, you know the commodification of nature and the exploitation of resources that you describe in your book. Um, you know, that these are all, and the whole British concept of high farming, because that's what you're talking about when you're talking about the, the people um, taking and closing the commons and removing the peasantry from their, um, you know, natural system of subsistence, farming and, and you know, agriculture. Um, so what's, we haven't really changed very much, in other words. We're, we're go, we've gone straight from, <laughs> from that to doing it to other countries around the world. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about the current applications of that same capitalist mentality uh, on, you know, uh, what do they call them, developing nations, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, some things have changed enormously in terms of the technology and the scale mm-hmm. of, um, of operations. And also, as you pointed out earlier, the tremendous influence 
of the retail sectors and the input sectors. In other words, the agricultural inputs like pesticides, mm -hmm. fertilizers, um, irrigation, uh, you know, uh, GMOs, seed technology, genetically yeah. modified right. uh, seed and, and this type of thing. That's all changed quite a bit, but there are some basic capitalist threads driving um, all of this development and all of the dispossession, which is associated with this expansion of um, not just a model of production, but a model of a food system. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that the, at the core of it is one of the things I try to do with the book is to bring out basic principles of political economy. And in political economy developed, um, you know, before economics. It it's predates economics by 100 years or so. Um, but it basically looks at who has what, who does what, who gets what, mm -hmm. and what do they do with it. In other words, you look at the power relations, um, the social and, and political and technological power relations of a society uh, um, that describe capitalism. Mm -hmm. And what we see in capitalism is um, two things, or actually three fundamental things, I would say. One is um, an imperative, well, let's say, to accumulate. It's about the accumulation of wealth. Yeah. And capital itself is just profit chasing more profit in order to um, accumulate more wealth. And this tremendous accumulation of wealth um, can lead to tremendous amounts of technological development and social development. But it also runs, always runs into a problem which is called over-accumulation, hmm. the crises of over-accumulation, in which, essentially, so much wealth is accumulated in so few hands that it can't get out. <laughs> and, and the rest of society that doesn't have this much wealth yeah. um, isn't able to buy the products that are being produced. And so you get recessions and depressions, and, hmm. you know, um, and we... See, we see that capitalism goes through these periods, these cycles of uh, boom and bust yeah. through history. And then we see, um, we see that our political systems adjust, and they go through periods of what we call liberalization mm -hmm. and periods of reform. When we say liberalization, we don't mean that you know, all of a sudden uh, they're in favor of uh, you know, gay marriage or something. No, <laughs> we mean liberalization of the economy. Which Meaning. means that you take the gloves off the market. Right, you let right. the market do whatever it wants. You deregulate right. the market completely. Um, and that ends up concentrating tremendous amounts of wealth uh, in very few hands and uh, dispossessing tremendous amounts of uh, people, on the other hand. And that's what's Until happening now, right? Big, big booms and then big busts. Like, like um, oh, the Roaring Twenties was a period of liberalization in this country. Uh -huh. And then we get a big bust in 1929. Right. And during the Roaring 20s, we had what was called the Golden Age of Agriculture in the United States, mm. when, in which we had parity. In other words, farmers could make a de decent living. Right. Um, and things didn't, the inputs didn't cost so much. In fact, uh, you could, I think that the uh, exchange of uh, a bushel of wheat for um, a gallon of gasoline was about that no one suspected that very soon it was going to be the other way around. It would take four bushels of wheat to get a gallon of gasoline um, after the bust. 
Uh-huh. Right? So they have this tremendous boom. People making a lot of money. And I go into this, this history. You have to understand World, World War, how war fits in and whatnot, World War yeah. I. And right. it was a boon for farmers. But then after the war, you know, suddenly no one needs the crops anymore. And then they right. uh, market crashes. And then, so the prelude to the 1929 stock market crash, in fact, was the crash of the farm economy. Huh. And then after that period of liberalization, we go into a period of reform. And that period of reform was Franklin Delano Roosevelt with the New Deal. Right. And the New Deal starts with agriculture. Yep. The New, the new Deal first puts limits on how much we can produce so that our farmers won't overproduce. Right. So and then the also there was the granary. The they, it they, provides a, a close to parity price for right. what farmers do produce so they won't go broke. And then we establish grain reserves. Right. Because grain reserves help you to maintain uh, a stable price. Uh, if there's too much grain on the market, the government buys up the grain and raises the price. If there's not enough grain, the government lets out some grain and um, lowers the price. And that's what farmers need, it's a stable price, of course. Right. So we had all these things, and we entered into a period of uh, reform, and which was tremendously, tremendously official um, to the United States and managed to distribute a lot of the wealth of the food system um, throughout the throughout society, now, it's also important to understand that these reforms don't come out don't come about just because of the uh, the goodwill of reformists. <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the first one to say, "That's a great idea. Now go out there and make me do it." <laughs> and in fact, that's what people did. If you those who uh, have, have looked at it, not too many of us remember those days, but in fact, the streets were full. Unions were strong. Yeah. Different political parties were strong. In fact, and there were massive protests around the country, in fact, around the world. And it looked for a moment there like, cap- like the country was going to fall. In fact, it looked like capitalism was going to fall. Uh-huh. And that's where Roosevelt was able to cut a deal with the business magnates at the time. And the story is he said, gentlemen, do you want to have a smaller piece of the pie or do you want to lose the whole pie? Because I think we're going down. So it's very important to have these strong counter-movements, social movements, when people just can't take this tyranny of the market anymore um, in order to introduce reforms. Now, you asked me about how the, um, the food system, the capitalist food system, you know, established in England and then exported to the, new, to the colonies. Um, you know, where did it go from there? Right. Well... Again, this is a story of a crisis of accumulation and market expansion. Because after World War II, where we had really uh, turned the U.S. into a a chemical-based agriculture, Mm -hmm. um, because we had all these nitrates left over Mm -hmm. from the Second World War, and we had also all this money which we had printed up. And we also had a lot of money in our banks because we'd been selling food to the Europeans, yeah, who had stopped growing food because they were fighting the war. Right. And we continued to grow food, and we were able to do this. In fact, we were only able to uh, fight the war because we imported 4 million Mexican farmers to the United States to pick our crops. Yeah. Because those, all the farm boys were out fighting. And a lot of the women were in, were in the arms industry. Right. Making bombs. So who was going to grow the food? 
Well, we found Mexican peasants to do that. And, and in the course, they really transformed the face of our agriculture. So there was tremendous production coming out of the United States mm. during the Second World War. And following the war came the Marshall Plan, and we sent food to Europe. And then we began to send tractors to Europe and inputs to Europe to rebuild their agriculture. Well, it was very successful, and we loaned them a lot of this money, which we had laying around. Right. We loaned both to farmers in the, in the U.S., and we loaned to Europeans, and we told everybody to produce, and they did. And, of course, then the bottom dropped out of the market when they overproduced. Right. So they stopped buying stuff from the United States. So the United States is stuck with one hand on all this grain, don't know what to do with, and the farmers in the U.S. are unable to absorb any more inputs from the petroleum industry or the automobile industry, right? Mm-hmm. We have been repurposed for um, since wartime. So what do we do? Well, the first thing that happened was that Ford and Rockefeller got together and said, let's explore markets in the global south. Yeah. They called it the underdeveloped world then. Right. And so they sent a man named Carl Sauer, who was an anthropologist, who knew Mexico very well. Uh, they sent him down to Mexico and asked him to come back and tell them, what can we do to save Mexico from hunger? Um, so hmm. Carl Sauer came back and said, actually, you know, they're doing very well. They have some infrastructure problems, about, and problems in getting food from point A to point B. But aside from that, they have uh, they've just had a massive land reform. Uh, Pestry is producing very well. They have hundreds of different varieties of maize and of beans and mm-hmm. other cultivars to feed themselves. I suggest you just leave them alone. You could probably do a lot more damage going down there than good. So they fired Carl Sauer, <laughs> and they got a man named Norman Borlaug. He's a crop scientist from the Midwest. Right. And he went down, took one look, and said, oh, we can fix this. And that was the answer they wanted to hear. Right. Because, you see, they needed to get their products out. And that was the beginning of what was called the Green Revolution. Exactly. Borlaug came up with some dwarf wheat. You know, Mexicans <laughs> ate corn. Yeah. He came up with wheat. Right. Um, so he came up with some dwarf wheat, which is then sold to India. Yeah. Right. Um, now, this dwarf wheat produces... Uh, much more than traditional wheats if you provide it with fertilizer, if you grow it on the best flat land, if then you expand and use machinery and basically scale up and you invest a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Who is this good for? Well, it's not good for most of the farmers of the world because most of the farmers of the world are peasants and they don't have much money. So it's good for a middle to large scale producer who can get a loan and, of course, there was a lot of money, and the banks from the north loaned a lot of money to the governments in the south to loan out to these farmers. Right. So um, this is really not about solving hunger. It's about solving a problem of a crisis of accumulation within the industry. Later on, Norman Borlaug went on to win the Nobel Prize because they said he saved a billion people from hunger. Yeah. Um, well, that's really debatable. First of all, they never measured it. They just measured the extra amount of food that was grown and then calculated that on a caloric basis and said, oh, they have a billion people. Wow. Um, in fact, what happened, and they never measured how many more people went hungry as the result of the Green Revolution, because what it did again was, just like British high farming back in the, at the dawn of capitalism, 
It dispossessed the peasantry and concentrated in the hands of the wealthy. And mm-hmm. so the peasantry fans out and spreads to the agricultural frontier, the rainforest. Cutting right. down the trees to access nutrients and, and um, grow basic grains. Or they go up into the hillsides, very unstable hillsides. So in, initially with the Green Revolution, there's a tremendous flush of food, both from the improved, um, we call them high-yielding varieties, they're actually high-demanding varieties, and then, the, and then also because of the expansion of agricultural land through the peasantry. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that we have to take a, a much finer-grained look at things like the Green Revolution and see how they respond to the demands of capital much more than they respond to the demands of society. Right. I mean, when we say we're going to um, save the world from hunger by doubling production over the next uh, 20 years uh, so that we can feed a world with 10 billion people, we forget that we produce enough food right now to feed 10 billion people. Yes. And there's still a billion people or more going, going hungry. Yeah. Because need is not the same as demand. A lot of people need food, but they don't have money to express that need as a market demand. And the, I think that the, the um, heights or the, or the depth of the injustice in this arrangement is, and, and this is really what feeding the world today is about, this, this discourse, this mantra about feeding the world, is, in fact, the people who produce most of the world's food, close to 70% of the world's food, are very poor farmers. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not industrial. It's not mega agribusiness, right? No, it isn't. It's very poor farmers, and on less than twenty-five percent of the land, they produce between fifty and seventy percent of the world's food. Right. Okay. So, what's really going on is that industry wants that market. That's what's going on. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about providing them technology and hooking them into the global market. Those who've been working in agricultural development for a while know that these are code words. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, if you provide a, a destitute peasant with new technology, you can give it to them for free at first. And that's usually what happens. It's kind of yeah. like a, a pusher on a corner, pushing crack. First you give out the seeds and the fertilizer. That's all free. Um, but then they come back and they want some more. Now you have to sell it to them. But they don't have money, so you loan them some money. Right. And then use it. Tropics, where most of the world is produced, um, if you add fertilizer to the soil, it very quickly burns up the organic matter. And you get a flush of productivity, but then your production goes down. And yeah. this has happened over and over and over again. So that, that means that the peasants have to borrow more money, and then they have to um, apply more fertilizer. And then, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the seeds and stuff. The seeds don't keep well traditional seeds, so you have to sell them right away after you harvest, which is the worst time to sell, because that's when the price is lowest, because right. everybody else is selling. Um, and then you're in, you're in debt, and sooner or later, you know, you're buying food. Six months, you know, three, four, five, six months after the harvest, you've eaten what little you were able to sell, and then you're buying food. Right, And right. then the price of food goes, and you can't afford it, and you go hungry. Right, And right. so actually, hunger is exacerbated by these models. And the, the last, I think, um, well, not certainly not the last, but the, the other 
sort of very sad irony to this is that most of the hungry people in the world are farmers because yeah. of this. And most of those farmers are women. It's important to remember that women produce most of the world's food. Yeah. And they're the ones going hungry. Women and girls are on the highest uh, uh, indices of hunger. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, we think about hunger, global hunger, and we think about, you know, far off continents of Africa or Asia or Latin America, and it's true. However, we also have hunger in the United States. Yep. And where is it? Who are the hungriest people in the United States? The people who work in our food system. Yeah, Those definitely. are the hungriest people. They have the highest levels of uh, diet-related disease, and they have um, the highest levels of what we call here food insecurity. Right. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm actually going to be interviewing somebody from the Food Chain Workers Alliance <laughs> about that very same thing in, uh, in, a, in a short while. But I, um, fascinating as this history stuff is, I want to kind of move along here because we don't have too much more time and there's so much to cover. So when you describe the food movement, um, well, wait, let's go, let's talk for a second about if the food, let's talk about solutions. Like, let's talk about how to how to dial some of this back. So you suggest in the book that if the food industry remains exactly the same, i.e. a capitalist-controlled system, you say that the economy will have to grow at a rate of 7% for the next 50 years in order to maintain its current level of productivity. Is that is, Am I understanding that correctly? And that the... Um, in terms uh, of industrial well, agriculture. And then the result of that would be to displace some 2.5 billion people worldwide from agricultural economies? So, so how, how, how does that work? So here's Explain the, that. Here's the, here's the deal. I mentioned that what's really at stake when, um, you know, Monsanto, Syngenta, USAID, mm-hmm. or all these people talk about ending hunger, or Bill Gates, for that matter, right. when he talks about ending hunger, what they're really talking about is capturing that market, which up to now is, you know, occupied by a third of humanity, mm-hmm. the peasantry. You know, 2.5 billion people or so. Um, they want that market. Now, the model which is introduced, um, which uses, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of investment, a tremendous amount of resources, uh, which is 80% of the world's water, produces 40% yeah. of the world's greenhouse gases, um, and is, you know, driven by things like GMO seeds and stuff. So that model is an industrial model which will always get bigger and will always dispossess. The history of that model, mm-hmm. and that's the history in this country, too. We're losing the middle-sized farmer. Yeah. Our farms are getting big, and then we have fragmentation on the bottom. So if we follow that model out to its logical conclusion of what these guys want to do just to ostensibly save the world from hunger, it will mean displacing all of the peasantry, displacing pretty much 2 billion people or more, nearly right. a third of humanity. So my question is, since this, since these these models don't produce more jobs, they eliminate jobs. Yeah. Where are these people going to go? Right. And what are they going to do? We have no we have no new industrial revolution to sop up all this labor, and in the world economy would go at seven percent a year for the next years in order to absorb this labor. Well, we're not growing at 2% now. Right. So that's clearly an impossibility. 
um, under this system. It's absolutely impossible. So if we continue with this green revolution model, which is now sort of the gene revolution model mm-hmm. of development, um, we're basically condemning a third of the world to abject misery and poverty. So I think we need to go the other way. I think we need to repopulate the countryside, not depopulate it. Mm-hmm. I also think the countryside needs to be a good place to live, not a bad place to live, yeah, really. which means we have to invest in what's called the social wage. And the social wage is basically health, education, and welfare. And so we bring in roads and schools and water. and you know, In other words, society invests in its countryside. And the very few places you see where this is done, in fact, it works. Mm-hmm. Um, the that's going against the hegemony of this other model, which is part of the new corporate food regime, which is going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, you know, now the next iteration of this model, which we call the agrarian transition, is going to be, you know, basically the satellites will beam down information to a tractor, and then the tractor will apply, you know, fertilizers and seed and pesticide mm-hmm. in accordance with what the satellite has detected. Um, and all this information will be controlled. You know, a lot of us are, are still uh, fighting, you know, Monsanto and Syngenta and one other on these GMOs. You know, they've, they've gone way beyond that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this satellite anymore. technology is already no, happening. This is already they, they happening. They care about controlling the information, and they're going to be using CRISPR technology. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's gone way beyond anything that we've been fighting against. So really, when I say we need to go to the root, we need to look at the model. That, we need to look at the system which produces this model of development. And the other thing we need to do is, you know, one simple thing we could do right now is we could apply our antitrust thoughts. Yeah. You know, the... the the big retailers are coming together. The big seed and chemical companies are all coming together. The big meat producers. Huge Absolutely. Completely unaccountable to anybody or anything. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be con- they're controlling our food supply. And they're trying desperately to penetrate these other uh, low-end markets around the world. And I think we have to turn it around. I think we go the other direction. Well, I, I won't disagree with you, Eric, but I, I got to say that the idea that, um, uh, first of all, that um, I, I think at one point in your book you suggest that we abolish the concept of private property, and because that is essentially the root of capitalism, and I, I, I just I'm not sure that anyone is going to go for that, no matter how low they are on the food chain uh, financially. Um, I, you know, I just like I, I feel like capitalism is so seductive in many ways to people, and that's why it has become the prevailing system, and why it beat out socialism and communism essentially, because people are people and they want to own stuff. Um, so I, I think it's really, I think it's hard to imagine dealing a death blow to capitalism. Um, but at the same time, I, I couldn't agree with you more that if we let it continue in its current form, uh, it certainly will um, result in in the displacement and the poverty and the hunger that you that you suggest, that you've just pointed out. And I... I, I actually, just... I don't say that we should abolish private property. What I say, actually, George Naylor, who is the former president of the National Family Farm Coalition, yeah. and is a farmer from Churton, Iowa, says that we have to decommoditize property. We need, need oh, to decommoditize okay, right. land and decommoditize food. Yeah, no, it is um, because that's that's the problem. That's why it's concentrating the way yeah, it is. Right. And because it's just following a capitalist logic. 
And the other thing I would say is um, I also don't agree, quite frankly, that people some, somehow, you know, genetically programmed uh, who want private property. I mean, these, you know, these are socially conditioned, socially produced, given the system that we have. And what we see around the world and in the United States is tremendous pushback to this. And you see it especially amongst those sectors in the U.S. that have been most negatively impacted by the food system. So, I mean, these are poor people and people of color, immigrants, the ones without which we wouldn't have a food system, For quite sure. frankly, yeah. all tomorrow, right. um, are rewarded through the system mm-hmm. with more wealth. In fact they're being expropriated of the wealth they produce. And so they are finding both new ways to produce food. One has said, why are we producing food? Why do people want to produce food? We produce more food than any other country in the world. Yeah. We're the richest country in the world. How can we possibly have hunger? And why are people insisting on producing their own food? It's because the system doesn't work for them. And I would say that the system is not broken. You know, we don't have to fix the system. The system is working precisely as a capitalist food system in a period of late capitalism is supposed to work. I agree. It concentrates wealth in a few hands and it has all the social and environmental externalities onto society. Right. But so it also need, yeah, but it also it, provides a ton of cheap that. capital so changing, cheap calories. If you look at, if you look on the ground, people are inventing not just, you know, permaculture but in fact new ways of relating to each other through food, new ways of organizing their communities around food, um, new ways of establishing common ground, and most importantly, new ways of reestablishing our public sphere. We have lost the public sphere. The market decides everything, and that mm-hmm. just means whoever the biggest market player gets to decide. Mm-hmm. And we need to recapture our public sphere. And that's actually happening with food on the ground in the U.S., and around the world. So where these experiments take us, I think, is, is what we need to be thinking about. And in order to think clearly about what the possibilities are, I think we have to understand the system that we're in, which yeah. is why we have to understand capitalism if we want to change the food system. And it's why people have to read your book. <laughs> I would invite them to do that. I would invite them to do that, too. And unfortunately, on that note, we will have to close. Eric, it's been a real pleasure uh, having you on the show. So promote your book and yourself and your organization shamelessly. Now is your moment. So tell us about, okay. your, tell us about your website. Well, tell us about any you, readings, Katie. you know, whatever it is. Food first. Thank let's you. hear about that. How do people learn more? Thank you, Katie. So... The, the book is called um, A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, Understanding the Political Economy of What We Eat. It's just coming out this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, the co-production between Monthly Review Press and Food First Books. You can go to www.foodfirst.org to pre-order a signed copy, if you like. Mm. And um, stay tuned through our website. We'll be um, publicizing uh, very soon uh, we're still organizing the tour. We don't know all the stops yet. It'll be a West Coast tour, or East Coast tour. And Fantastic. If you're coming to New York, heartland. let me know so that we can maybe we can have a sit down right in the studio and discuss this further, maybe with another guest or something like that. That would be fun. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate you joining me today. And thanks to my sponsor. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Have a great week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.